Uh, we're continuing in our sermon series today. This is number five of uh, seven parts of looking at the good news of God's hate, where we're looking at just a few of the things that the scriptures say that, God's, that God hates, and uh, that's propelling us into the gospel of Jesus, the gospel meaning the good news of Jesus, and how does God, how does Jesus interact with these things in some way. Uh, last week, Tim Deering did a, a wicked heart, wicked plans. We've done proud eyes, we've done a lying tongue, um, and today we're going to be uh, talking about feet, at least a little bit. Feet is everybody's favorite body part, correct? Good? Um, I know every time we do foot washing, there's always still, even though we have some roots there, there's still a little bit of oddity with that. Um, so as we get into things and as people get settled, uh, I was on the internet, and I guess there's shoe crazes, there's like whole things about shoes where People collect shoes that they, like they used to collect baseball cards and everything else. And so people have walls of shoes and everything else. I did not know this. But here are some of the most expensive shoes I found uh, on the internet. So coming in at $4,000 is the Jesus shoe. The Jesus shoe actually has holy water from the River Jordan, I believe, that's put, that's put in this part here. And it has this reference here about walking on water. Which I feel like that should be, a, like, there needs to be some kind of disclaimer about, like, don't try to actually do that. At $35,000, so half the amount of my home, we got, now these are cool, from, from Back to the Future. These are a 2016 edition from Back to the Future. They do not have the, uh, the, the straps, though, that automatically lace themselves. Th that, those do not have them. Coming in at $100,000, we have the Drake edition of Air Jordans, which I think these are pretty, pretty uh, cool looking, but I would not pay $100,000 for a pair of shoes. Would you, Toby? Yeah, you'd pay $100,000? Good. Um, could I speak to the two of you after service about... And then uh, one of the most expensive shoes at $437,000 is a shoe from the Olympics. And it's called the moon shoe. I don't know why it's called the moon shoe, but it's the only one left. And the interesting thing about this one is that this uh, rubber sole was actually made in a waffle iron. It was actually made in a waffle iron. Do you remember, Mr. Helms, what year, what, I think in the 70s? 77? Oregon Ducks, wow. So this is one of the only uh, known remnants of that shoe, and so it comes in at $400,000, which is awesome. So no matter how much our, our footwear costs, it's kind of like one of those things, it's not the outside of the person that matters, it's the inside. So you put your feet inside of your shoes, and we can have the most expensive shoes in the world, and yet our feet aren't necessarily more valuable, or they don't make us more valuable people, or they don't make us with $100,000 shoes, that doesn't make us a better person. Um, one of the things, though, that uh, author Frederick Buchner, who is a theologian and an author, uh, his book in the Alphabet of Grace, he writes that when you wake up each morning and as you're called by God to experience the human uh, experience of life, if you want to know who you are, watch your feet. If you want to know who you are, watch your feet, because where your feet take you is who you are. So he's saying in some case, like the places that we go or that we don't go, that we travel with with our feet, they somehow inform the kind of people that we are. 
And today we're on number five of the things that God hates from Proverbs. You know, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And one of these things are feet that make haste to run to evil. Feet that make haste to run to evil. And just like wicked, we might think of the word wicked um, maybe without nuance. Sometimes we can think of the word evil without nuance. We can think like um, there is definitely this contrast in Scripture between good and evil. Um, But Christian philosophers have tried to describe evil as the lack of goodness in something. Or something where there is goodness and yet it is diminished so much that there is evil. So you can have good without evil. And yet if you can't really understand evil without there being some kind of good. Because when God created the heavens and the earth, he did not create things wicked and evil. He created them good. And so there's this diminishing of good that equals evil. Or there is this spoiling of good that equals evil. And with us personally, we see in the letter to Romans uh, that the Apostle Paul writes, he talks about this, this good and evil contrast and how he even says within himself, there are these things that uh, I do not do the good that I want. So there's this good that I want to do, and yet I don't do it. And then there's this evil, this lack of goodness, this diminished goodness, this spoiled goodness that I don't want to do, and what do I do? I keep on doing it. And then the Apostle Paul goes on later to shepherd us to say we we are to abhor, we're to detest what is evil, we're to hold fast and cling to what is good. Again, the contrast between good and evil. We're not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil by good. And as disciples of Christ, we're also encouraged that we need to be innocent in uh, evil, and yet we need to be wise in what is good. We shouldn't let things that are spoken, uh, things, something that's good, we don't want those good things to be spoken of as evil. So our bridge uh, with this good and evil mindset or the feet of evil that run into evil uh, into our gospel story is in the, the book of Luke. So if you want to take your Bibles and go to the book of Luke. And Jesus uses this phrase. He uses this phrase in this, in this, uh, in this story that says, Depart from me, meaning take your feet. Take your feet even if they have $100,000 shoes on them. Take your feet and get out of here. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And if you were to think, what is a worker of evil, what would your definition of that be? Like, how would you uh, put some, some skin on, on those bones as far as like, so a worker of evil, what does somebody have to do or be to be a worker of evil? And so we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 13 today. We're going to read through the text, then have a couple comments before we go into worship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Luke 13, starting in chapter, or verse 22, I will be reading out of the NIV, uh, I'm not reading out of the NIV, I will be reading out of uh, the ESV today. Father God, as we open your word to us today, we want to take it seriously, and we want to be able to receive uh, your living word that you speak to us today. Help us to uh, bridge that gap between the word that you spoke Um, 2,000 years ago, and what you would have us here today, God. Um, I pray for everybody's heart and mind that is here. What are the things that you are convicting us of this morning, God? What are the things that you want to beautify in your character today, God? And help us to receive who you are in all of your goodness. 
even if your goodness is sometimes uh, seems harsh or even if your goodness seems odd to us. May we receive your goodness and may we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse uh, 22, Luke 13, 22. This is kind of a, a little bit of a new section because he's moving from town to town. And so um, we can connect it to the past a little bit, especially to this idea of that you need to repent or you will perish. That um, especially at the beginning of Luke chapter 13, there's this idea of like, do you think these people over here that face this calamity are worse sinners than you? And if you do think that, why? And what are you going to do? Because they're actually not worse sinners. And sometimes evil happens in the world, not in a moral sense, and not in a sense of I've done something ethically wrong, but in, in the world is broken and there's calamity and disaster in the world. And it can be easy sometimes to think like, oh, well, because this person is suffering, automatically that means that they must have some kind of sin in their life, which isn't always the case. Is it the case sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. But it's not like this, this, this uh, straight uh, case that it's not black and white like that. The scriptures show that it's not black and white like that. And when people are asking that question, they're basically trying to build themselves up to be like, well, I'm not like them because those things haven't happened to me. So there's, no, there's nothing I need to repent from. There's nothing that I need to change my heart or my mind about. And Jesus is like, no, we're all in the same boat or you're all in the same boat. That unless you repent, you will perish. Unless you turn uh, from the things that you hold so tightly to that actually take life away from you and turn to the one true living God, you're going to perish. And God doesn't want that. And I, Jesus, don't want that either. Uh, starting in verse 22. I'm going to go back. I'm not going to start in verse 22 yet. I think sometimes, does anybody here like watching crime shows or watching documentaries about, about kind of weird stuff? Um, I was thinking the other night, some of our favorite shows are Prodigal Son, which is a crime drama, and uh, there was a show called Evil, which is also a crime drama, and I was thinking uh, a couple weeks ago how I wonder sometimes I like watching these things because it makes me feel better about myself, because I'm not, you know, this serial killer that's doing all these absolutely horrible things, and I can just be on the outside kind of thinking about what, um, like how to solve the mystery, which I really like to do. But then I wonder if there's some kind of sense where I kind of puff myself up. I'm like, well, at least I'm not, you know, murdering people in the back of a Hardee's or anything like that. And I kind of puff myself up a little bit. I, I don't consciously think that, but there was a time I was just like, oh, is this part of the reason we as a culture or me personally like these crime dramas? Is because it gives me a little bit of a sense of self-righteousness because I'm not like those people. And I think the best crime dramas are the ones that also kind of hint at that, um, Sure, you might not have done this, and yet there is that temptation, and that is, there is that brokenness and that proclivity in every single one of us that the good guy all of a sudden can flip in the storyline and become the bad guy, and that we have to watch out for that, that it's not as simple as those people and those people. We're all kind of in this together. Now, Luke chapter 13, verse 22. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Lord, will those who are saved be few? So this is the question that opens up what Jesus is about to say. And there's different questions like this in the scripture from different people. We have Nicodemus asking, how can a person be born again? 
How can somebody be born again? That doesn't make any biological sense, and it's kind of weird if you think about it strictly biologically. It doesn't make any sense. Explain to me, Jesus, how, how can a person be born again? Or to the rich young ruler, um, there was this question of how do I inherit eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? And now it's, Lord, will those who are saved, will they be few? And this is a good question. Depending on who you read in uh, the ancient Near Eastern text of the culture, most Judeans, most Jewish people, most of God's people thought that everybody, the majority of people were going to be saved simply because they were God's people. And so even there, and God is gracious and, and merciful and slow to anger, um, but he also doesn't let sin go undealt with. And so there was this mindset that when he's saying, are, are, how many are going to be saved? Are only a few going to be saved? Because we kind of have this, this thought that most of us are going to be saved. And yet, the way you're talking, Jesus, that there's a lot of talk about repentance and that if you don't repent, there's going to be this perishing. So what's going on here? Explain that to us more, Jesus. And Jesus, in his normal fashion, doesn't answer the question directly and kind of brings up other things that maybe that's not the best question to ask while still addressing the question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Then he kind of goes into this story, into this parable. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and we drank with you in your very presence. And you taught us in our streets. How can you say that you don't know who we are? But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So all these heroes of the Judean faith, you see all these people that you would want to be, that you looked up to, that are definitely imperfect people, and yet they're on the inside, and you're at the door kind of peeking through the slat, being like, well, they're in there. I want to be in there. It says, you will look, you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at this, a couple, a couple thoughts. Um, I think the question is, are you entering into the space that God wants you to enter into? Are you entering into the space that God wants you to enter into? Obviously, at first, we're talking about eternal salvation. We're talking about the eternality of our bodies in the resurrection of the dead and of our souls, of our whole being, the resurrection of the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. We're talking about that, and we shouldn't do that. Are we, or we should do that. We should say, am I abandoning myself in order to be in Christ? Am I, am I surrendering myself to what God has? Am I really taking a good look at myself and say, you know, I am a sinner and without the um, saving grace of the crucifixion that 
there is no eternal life for me. There is no, there is no ultimate mercy. God is always showing his mercy. God is always showing his love. But am I entering into the place God is calling me? Into union with Christ. So that's one aspect of are you in the place Christ God wants you to be. The other thing is, though, is that we can read this and we can think like, especially if you've been a Christian most of your life, we can think, oh, well, I'm good, I'm secure, I can kind of shut this off as far as thinking about the narrow door of Jesus. But also consider this in the idea of spiritual maturity. As you are growing in Christ, where are the places that you are dragging your feet to enter into? Where are the places that uh, might not be about eternal security and yet are very much so about entering into the goodness of God even if that goodness of God might be a tough and hard spot? Where are the ways as we as disciples are dragging our feet to go into those places? To where is Jesus telling you to journey with him towards this goodness, even though it might seem heavy, even though it might seem something like you can't do on your own, which is part of the point, that you can't, we can't always go into the places that God calls us to on our own. And that's why he calls us to walk with him and to trust in him in those places. So think both eternal security as we think about the narrow door and then also think about this idea of uh, maturity. So first, uh, to answer the question, uh, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Um, what, does, uh, what do you think Jesus said in that text? Yes or no? Will those who are saved be few? Yes? I think he says no. Specifically because uh, down here, what does he say at the end where it's like the, the people are peeking in and they're seeing things. They're seeing Abraham and Isaac. And then in verse 29, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that there's going to be people from all corners of the world that are going to enter into God's kingdom. And again, this question is tricky. Uh, will those who are saved be few isn't really the right question. Will those who are saved be few? In one case, the answer is uh, no. There's going to be a ton of people in heaven. And you need to realize that. The idea of the kingdom of God having some kind of occupancy limit is not a thing. You know, There's not like, oh, well, we got to 144,000 we can't let anybody else in. And in fact, if uh, you quickly or you don't want to quickly turn to Revelation chapter 7, uh, a place where often some Christian traditions or sects or cults or whatever you want to say it kind of play like, oh, there's not, the kingdom of God is going to be so narrow um, because there's these 144,000 from these tribes and everything else. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says that, so this is John seeing this vision of heaven. It says, After this I, John, looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, you know, Hosanna to the highest. Salvation belongs to our God and, and he who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. A multitude that no one could number. A multitude that no one could number. Now, when I'm pointing this out to you, I'm not saying 
that uh, I do not believe in universal uh, salvation. But what I am saying is that we can have this question, well, who's all going to get in? Is there going to be few? And the first answer to that is like, there's going to be a ton of people in heaven because of the saving work of Jesus Christ and because of God's mercy that extends throughout the whole world. And we will definitely be surprised at some of the people that are there. And people will be surprised at the fact that if you are a believer in Jesus, that you are there. And there's going to be this awesome, this awesome surprise to be like, you? Really? God's grace is that good? So to, to start, uh, there is this broadness. This, there is this multitude to it. But then there is also the narrow part, right? So there is the, the multitude of everything that's going on here. Um, but, then there's, but then there's also the narrow, the door. So uh, one, thing, one takeaway to think about, being with Jesus is a start. And I think this is really interesting for us at Cornerstone. Being with Jesus is a start, but it is not an end. The presence of Jesus is a start, but it's not an end. Simply being around Jesus isn't enough. Which is challenging to me because we, uh, we talk about presence and witness, which is absolutely good and true. But in the context of this story, you know, twice the master says in the story, I do not know where you come from. I do not know where you come from. Uh, Eugene Peterson says, uh, the way he translates it, he's like, but you've known us our whole lives. You know everything about us. And then the master interrupts and saying, the kind of knowing you're talking about can hardly be called knowing. You don't know the first thing about me. You don't know the first thing about me. The people were with Jesus. He ate with them. He uh, uh, drank with them. He had meals with them. He was in their streets teaching and proclaiming the kingdom. And that is all good. There's not like anything bad about that. But there was something more than just being within his presence, within his vicinity, that wasn't enough. That it was good and there was blessing and everything there, but it wasn't enough. And uh, in uh, Romans, uh, the end of Romans chapter 14, it talks about how the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. But what it is a matter of, it's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so being around Jesus isn't enough. Are you around Jesus? Am I around Jesus and yet not entering in? Not communing with him? Which is the second main point. So the pre-point is that heaven is going to be big. The kingdom of God is huge. There's no occupancy limit there. Second thing, though, is that um, being around Jesus isn't quite enough according to this story. But then the, the third point is we aren't in the places that God calls us to simply because we do not enter them. So why don't we enter? So let's think philosophically or with imagery a little bit. Um, at times we can confuse the idea of striving to enter with something else. If I had a narrow door frame here and I'm telling you, or just take this gra uh, graphic here. If I'm telling you everything about this graphic, about how the lines are you know, succinctly cut about how the point of view goes up to there, about how the contrast of black and white is great, about how the layering is happening on yet a flat icon. Does that mean I'm entering into a door? I can look at a physical door and I can tell you all about it. But that doesn't mean I'm entering through that door. And a lot of times we can think that our head knowledge of Jesus, which might be absolutely true, and what, which might be absolutely good, is the same thing as entering through the door. 
and it's not. And on a similar uh, fashion, I can talk about a door. That's not a great door over there because it's not decorated. But you could talk about how beautiful a door is, how adorned it is, how, man, that, that got some nice lines there. And that is one beautiful door that was decorated. You talking about the beauty of the door, you talking about the truth of the construction of the door is not the same as entering through the door. And so often, sometimes, I feel like we can think, self-included, that we're talking about this thing, but we're not entering into it. We're not communing with Jesus. Other times, which I kind of hit on before, we kind of peek inside the door and we're like, oh, Jim's in there. And Jim and I have some problems. And I don't really like the way Jim acts sometimes. And Jim kind of annoys me. I'd always pick on Jim. I love Jim. I know I can pick on him. And so there can be this, this stuff that happens in us too, I think, that we're not entering in. We're not striving to enter because I don't want to be around those people. And then our insecurities are actually driving us away from the kingdom of God. Rather than surrendering, surrendering our insecurities, abandoning them and be like, well, Jesus is in there though. And that's where I want to be. I want to enter through and, and recline, rest, not just eat and drink on the outside, not just hear teaching on the outside, but enter into and recline. And, and that thing there is worth the oddity that Jim and I have of our personalities. Or even some of the sin that ultimately might be between us, that he hurt me, I hurt him. And then within that covenant then, within that space, then we need to start working through there. But I don't want to enter into there because I don't really want to work through that. So maybe sometimes we don't enter because we're simply uh, describing it rather than walking in. Other times we see who's in there. And then third, sometimes we don't enter the door that is narrow because of the things that we're carrying. Right? The things that we are clinging to in our lives that can't fit through the door and aren't made to fit in the kingdom of God that we won't let go of. We have this huge massive TV that the McCumbers, Gene and Annie gave to us Naomi and I talked about this and she got super angry about the story because I got the TV without asking her. She didn't want the TV. And so we got, and it was one of those big, I can't even, like it was this thick. It was one of those rear projection or whatever. And it was a beast. We couldn't get it in our front door because of the turn. It was too narrow of a turn. It was such a big thing that we could get it just in the front a little bit, but to make the door, there's no way. We couldn't pick it up and push it in because it was too, it was too uh, wide. So we had to come in the back door and then we had to get it in through there. I remember a couple, um, probably maybe a year ago, I think it was towards the, right before COVID hit, that the elders were upstairs praying. And uh, Laura was uh, talking about a specific verse in Isaiah. And the imagery that came to mind was that in this, in this verse, in this part of Isaiah, there was this overwhelming flood coming. And there was this refuge set up for whoever wanted to enter into this refuge. But I kept having a picture of having the, trying to hold this huge big TV that I didn't want to let go of and trying to like get in this, this narrow entryway and I wouldn't do it. And everybody's yelling, come in, come in, put it down. But I didn't want to let go of what I was carrying. And so I could fit, but the thing, because I, I, ultimately we're all made for the kingdom of God. But I couldn't fit because I wasn't willing to let go of this thing that was an idol. That, and no matter how I tried to sneak it in, 
or push it in, it wasn't going to happen because it didn't belong in there. So what is your TV? What could be your TV of entering to the places that God wants you to be and yet it's not a matter of you have to do this or that. It's a matter of what do you need to let go of? What do you need to abandon? What do you need to surrender? God is saying to us, I love you and you're wrong. <laughs> Put down the TV. I love you. Come in. I'll teach you a better way. Come in. I'll show you that you don't need to know everything. Let your pride at the door. Come in. I have a better purpose for your life. Come in. That thing that you're so passionate about, that thing's actually good. Don't let it turn into evil. Come in here. Take your feet and come in here. Repent. Put down this thing that you're carrying and enter in. So if evil is a lack of goodness, if our feet are not journeying into God's goodness, they will be running towards evil eventually. And that's the thing. These workers of evil. Were these workers of evil talked about in the sense of that they were rapists and murderers and extortionists? No, they simply did not really know Jesus. Or they simply would not enter in at the appropriate time. So rather than it being a moral or ethical thing, which it can most certainly be, there's also just this inner posture of if God is calling me to trust in him and to enter into a communion with him, into his presence, and that might mean I need to let go of things, or that might mean I need to show up on time according to God's time frame, not according to my own time frame. Am I actually going to respond to his word? Am I actually going to respond to his call to enter in? Or am I going to kind of go back and like, I'll, I'll get to that. There's time. I'll get to that. And not to say that God is a rushy God, not to say Jesus is rushy, but are we responding to the, the promptings of the Spirit appropriately and in a timely fashion? God is gracious and merciful and patient with us. Long-suffering. Don't hear me say otherwise. But are we responding to God in a timely fashion? And then finally, one point of adoration, uh, of love and respect that I would like us to carry from this story uh, or carry from the person of Jesus into our worship time that will be starting in a couple minutes um, is this. So there is this idea of evil being ethical and moral, um, of being spoiled goodness and of being diminished goodness. But there's another definition that's used within the scriptures, uh, uh, both in the New and the Old Testament, but specifically in the Hebrew scriptures, that evil is simply something that can mean a disaster. Evil is something that can simply mean a misfortune. Evil is something that can simply mean a calamity. So there's two interrelated but not exact definitions of that. And this goes back to what I said at the, at the, at the first time. This tower fell on this people. And the people are like, oh, they must be sinners. And there was something that, uh, that happened there that was evil. In the sense that there was a calamity, there was a misfortune, there was a broken part of the world just happening. But there wasn't necessarily a moral thing that was going on there. And so for us, the thing that we can uh, take as a, a point of adoration today is the fact that even though humanity is prone to run into uh, an evil situation to participate in it, and God hates feet that run into evil, Jesus also runs into evil. Jesus makes haste and sprints towards evil, not in membership with sin, rather to bring goodness to the calamity. 
rather to bring comfort to the misfortune, rather to bring some sense of peace and hope to the disaster. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of the one who publishes peace. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And how beautiful are the feet who publishes salvation and who says, God reigns. So as we go into worship today, we also thank God and thank Jesus that our lives are filled with suffering and calamity and evil. Some of that is our own fault. Some of that is the state of the broken world. And where we don't want to be a people that rushes into evil as far as participating in evil. We worship a God who sent his only son to run after us. Where has God chased after you? Where has God run after you? Where is he running after you right now? Where is he trying to chase you down and ultimately trip you up so that you don't fall off the cliff? Jesus is running after us today. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, for running into our disasters. We praise you, God, for your patience and for your pace towards us. And we ask you, God, that you would come and get us. Come and get Cornerstone and rescue us. Come and get the individuals, the men, the women, the children that are here. Run after us, God. We are in a far country, God. And as we turn and we repent and we see you running after us, may our hearts leap with joy. And may we enter into a time of worship where we receive uh, your goodness and your uh, correction, God. May we enter into a time of worship where we actually enter into it. That we don't just stay on the outside thinking about uh, the beauty which is good, thinking about the truth which is good, but that we enter into the beauty and the truth of you, Jesus. And there's no... uh, I can't logistically tell us how to do that. Can't say just step into it. May you lead our spirits in this space, God, of worship and of communion with you. May we abandon the things that we're holding on to, God, and may we not pick them up when we leave this space either. God, thank you for continuing to work in our lives, and we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen.